Welcome to the Princess and the Bee podcast, the place to be to build your empire as queen of your body, business, and life. I'm your host, Kimberly Spencer, founder of crownyourself.com, and I'm an award-winning coach, Amazon best-selling author, and multi-passionate entrepreneur. Each week, I give you the systems, strategies, and success stories to help you master your mindset, communicate with ease, and triple your productivity so you make the income and the impact you deserve. Imagine this podcast as your weekly spark of inspiration as you take it to the next level with all the bees of your life, body, business, bank account, boys, and babies. Let's make it rain. Hello and welcome back to The Princess and the Bee Holy moly. So I was blessed to be speaking at Annie Museum with my husband, Spike Spencer, who many of you know is a very talented voice actor, and he has been doing a lot in Japanese anime uh, for the past 30 years. And in the course of getting to travel to all these extraordinary places with him and to speak sometimes with him and to go to these anime conventions, which was a world that I was never open to in the past, I get to meet some really extraordinary people. And these two sisters blew me away beyond belief. Today, I have on Terry and Sherry, Terry Noto and Sherry Santiano, who are based in the suburbs of Chicago. They are kimono sisters, and they travel the U.S. to 30-plus events and expos per year through their business, Tangerine Mountain Imports and designs. They engage in a cultural exchange through teaching about kimono and making authentic wafuku or Japanese traditional clothing available to the public. And not only are these two women a font of information, they have a passion for what they do that is so freaking contagious. I could not not have them on this podcast. So you get a taste of what it feels like to absolutely love and have a mission that is driving you. So Terry, Sherry, welcome to the Princess and the Bee. Hello, thank you. Thank you so much for having us on. So I'm Terry. And I'm Sherry. And I know our voices sound very much alike. It's like so your sisters excited. or something. I know, right? I don't know. It's, I don't know how that happens. <laughs> Uh, so what got you into Japanese culture and specifically building an import and design business around it? Well, we, we get this question a lot. Um, my favorite response is that it's our dad's fault. Um, and that, that kind of takes people aback because they assume that, you know, oh, that must mean that your dad is Japanese. And no, <laughs> absolutely no. not. We're about as white as you get. Yeah. Um, but when we were really young, our dad was part of a delegation of attorneys that went over to China and Japan to kind of help them figure out how to more effectively deal with trade secret and things like that when doing business with the West. Um, basically the, the legal systems in both China and in Japan did not, not have a good focus on trade secret. And that was, it was basically holding international commerce back. Mm -hmm. So when he went out there with this delegation, he brought back stuff from Japan and we, we were just, we were blown away. Enthralled. I mean, absolutely enthralled. We like, I, I know I was a tiny, tiny tot, but when, when dad pulled that first kimono that I had ever seen out of that suitcase, it was like, oh, what's that? Like, yeah. I like that. I want more of that. Exactly. So, so what, what is the history of, of kimono that is, that, it, like, when, you, when we met, we had a beautiful conversation, and you just enthralled me with your knowledge of, of why kimono is, is so enrapturing in a way. Yeah, it, it's a fascinating topic for a lot of different types of people, whether you're a textile nerd or you're a fine art nerd or you're just a, a japanophile or you, you're just a, a an anime nerd i mean there's there's a lot of different ways to, to basically nerd out about kimono and I, I put it that way because people who get into kimono i think um really develop a passion for it because there's so much to love um you have a, a lot of um 
important artistic developments that happened because of kimono. Um, you've got all kinds of techniques for weaving and embroidery and for dye work that developed in Japan because of people's desire to have more and more beautiful kimono. Um, and then the kimono became, it, it sort of is, a, it was a status symbol in, um, in a lot of ways in the Edo period. So we're talking 1603 to 1868, where you had a, a lot of, um, um, people from sort of the middle class starting to become more and more wealthy. And so they were expressing that wealth through their clothing. And it's funny how the more things change, the more they stay the same, because back then you had people sort of meerkatting around looking at, okay, what are the kabuki actors wearing? Okay, that's beautiful. I want some of that. Okay, and then what What are the people in the next town? Oh, oh, this book has all kinds of designs in it for kimono, and, and somebody brought this from the next town over, and oh, I, you know, I like this. I want to commission that. So it, people were basically exchanging ideas all along trade routes throughout Japan, and as that happened, um, you had a lot of people looking at kimono as a way of expressing themselves, expressing their their sort of nouveau wealth. Um, and you also had a lot of people who were expressing even ideas through kimono. So there are kimono that um, take from no theater. There's kimono that express um, ideas about um, like weddings and how you want uh, the, the couple to stay together forever and have a long, happy life. Um, there's ideas about the transience of, of beauty and uh, how fleeting time is. And so there's, there's a lot of deep ideas um, that have been expressed through kimono over time. And something that separates kimono from Western fashion in a lot of ways is that the kimono, while it is a garment, it also is basically a canvas. And that that way of treating a piece of clothing that has the same form, basically, one kimono to the next, there really isn't a major difference between the cut or the, the stitching or the way that the kimono is assembled. It's, it's like they're kind of cookie cutter in a sense, but yet each one is different because it's been treated as its own individual canvas. So it's almost like if you can imagine wearing a painting, you know, taking your Ooh. favorite painting and you're, mm -hmm. and you're wearing that and it, and it's not like a print, it's, it's a one of a kind painting. That's how kimono evolved from the 1600s into, um, into the 1800s. So once you, get once you sort of adjust your thinking as a westerner from clothing as being defined by a cut or by um you know by the way that it's constructed and into this idea of clothing as a canvas it really opens your mind into ways of appreciating art that cross media um as well as cross um method methodology Wow. And I, I think one of the things that that you brought to my attention that I had no idea, because I, I am a history nerd, I mm. do like geek out over the stories of history, yeah. was how Japan uh, allowed for their culture to be shared in order to not have uh, imperialism, correct? Yes. Well, and it's interesting because I... Uh, I feel like this is actually one of the things that I personally enjoy talking to people the most about uh, when they encounter our business, because whenever you have a conversation about this, you know, the, the big CA comes up, cultural appropriation, you know, yes. what it is, what it isn't, how it pertains to what we're doing, how it pertains to the world in general. Because let's face it, we're two white chicks with a bunch of kimono. Yes. Just to state the obvious. We're not je ethnically Japanese. You know, nobody in our family is. We make no claim to that whatsoever. Right. We just have a passion and a love and for this And sometimes people will say, well, it's not part of your cultural heritage, so why do you care? And, and it's just like, there's, how can you not? How can you <laughs> not? But, but I think because, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, when, when Commodore Perry came and knocked on Japan's door in, in the 1850s and said, hey, trade or be colonized, 
you know, the, the Japanese people and the government at the time really took a hard look around and they're like, okay, well, when, when Westerners come in and take over, what happens? You know, you have an outside country or culture coming into a new country or culture and seeing it as lesser. And as long as everybody out in the world agrees that, okay, it's kind of lesser, then they're allowed in. They're allowed to come in and take over. So and, Japan, and, and the rest of the world doesn't have an issue with this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the rest of the world is like, oh, okay, well, that's how colonization works. So, okay, good, you go know, and go and colonize. Go colonize. But you know, Japan was really smart. You know, they took a look around and they're like, okay, well, we have art, we have politics, we have theater, we have a fashion industry, a booming fashion industry. You know, we have a booming ceramics industry. You know, let's take these things and let's show the world just how equal we can be, just how cultured we are and how we shouldn't be colonized. So when, you know, by the time Japan, you know, participated in the World's Fair about a decade later in France, at that point, there is already an interest in, oh, there's some Japanese stuff here. Oh, let's go check that out. You know, it wasn't seen as the lesser. It was seen as, oh, well, Japan's the cool new kid on the block. I want to be cool like them. Let's go check out what they're doing over there. So, you know, when people take a look at what cultural appropriation is today, Japan doesn't really fit what most people think of as cultural appropriation, you know, because when, when you look at cultural appropriation, you have to think, you know, to appropriate, you are taking something, you're stealing something from a foreign culture, you are claiming it as your own, that you created it, that you have control over it, and that you have rights to it. And you're doing this without the permission of the country or culture. You're literally stealing it and making it your own. Yes. For Japan, though, that doesn't fit. Japan prevented that sort of post-colonial idea of how to interact with people by exporting their culture, by sharing their culture. So when, when Japanese people see a non-Japanese person participating in things like kimono, like tea ceremony, like sumie, like ikebana, like flower ikebana the flower arranging, you know, and all of these various aspects. Or even if you just see kids learning origami in, yeah. in their, you know, classroom art you know, art classes. Yeah. You know, nobody freaks out. Nobody freaks out. No Japanese no, people G freak out. Yeah, right. That's yes. a distinction. Right. Um, but no Japanese people freak out because in reality, you're participating in the very thing that helped prevent Japan from being colonized in the first place. You know, by, by actually trying to learn about another culture and engage in cultural exchange with Japan, you are actually preserving that history of exchange that prevented Japan from falling, you know, victim to colonization in the first place. So the idea of cultural appropriation, the way that we typically think of it for most cultures, doesn't really exist, you know, in the same definition or in the same way for Japan. Yeah. Um, it, it's absolutely fascinating to look at. It is because I remember when I went to the Van Gogh Museum in uh, in Amsterdam, and there was a beautiful picture that Van Gogh painted of the geisha, mm -hmm. and it he, a lot of his paintings were inspired, like the deep dark lines were inspired by Japanese culture, and you can see that in other impressionist paintings. Well, and Kim, it's not just that. Um, and this is actually something that I studied very, very closely for my master's thesis. Um, there's a term called Japonisme that's bandied about in the art world quite a bit. I take a lot of personal issue with this term because this term kind of explains this, you know, sort of vague general acknowledgement of how, you know, Japanese art influenced, you know, Western art, specifically the Impressionists a lot of the time. The thing is, is that if you actually look at the notes that the Impressionists themselves were writing, you know, letters to their brothers, to their agents, to, to, each, other. to each other, you know, they actually describe a method of composition for laying out their artwork. So actually how they organized important information in their paintings and in their sketches um, that they specifically actually took from the Japanese art they were looking at. So it's not just quality of line 
explain it's not just you know coloration methods it's not just you know quality of light it's actually taking the physical bones of how a painting is constructed and lifting that from a Japanese model called folding fan composition and plopping it into Western artwork at the time that the Impressionists were figuring out what Impressionism was. Yeah. So when you go into museums like the Art Institute of Chicago, you can actually, if you take a folding fan with you and hold it up in front of many of these Impressionist paintings, you can actually see how all of the important bits of information are laid out as if they were radiating from slats of a folding fan. And, and that's a very concrete example of Japanese influence, but it just kind of gets brushed under the rug with this whole term of, oh, Japanese, well, yeah, it was kind of influenced, but we're not really going to tell it's, you it's not, how they it's, Yeah, it's not an influence as in you can separate Impressionism from Japanese art. The two are inseparable. Yeah. So if, if something is inseparable, it can't be influenced. It, it is yeah. an extension oh. of that thing. Did I tell you that these two were passionate about <laughs> culture and about their business or what? So my question to you is, how, what are the challenges that, that you have selling a completely non-Western concept of clothing for one and going um, into the, the cultural appropriation conversation to people who have seen it in photos or movies or in anime? And how do you address that conversation aside from like what you just like the mic drop that you just had on the <laughs> podcast? <laughs> right. Well, it, you know, Sherry, when, when, um, when Sherry was a kid, she was, she was the artist. She was just always into art. And so she got her degree in art education with a focus on museum and community education. Um, meanwhile, or, or slightly before her actually, I got my degree in business. And um, so one of the things that we recognized early on is that yes, this is a completely foreign in every sense in of the every word. sense <laughs> of the word experience probably the only closest thing that people have experienced trying on clothing like this when they come to our booth is if they've ever tried on like a wedding dress or or maybe been fitted for a tuxedo or something it's it's almost unlike anything that people have experienced before. So that's a real challenge. Another real challenge is the size issue. Um, you know, a lot of Americans are taller or, or bigger than um, people who are ethnically Japanese. Um, also the construction of women's kimono in particular, they're intentionally extra long because you are meant to tuck up part of that length into where you, where you set the obi on your body. And the obi is the wide stiff sash. So um, we actually get a lot of people who say, well, I, I must be too short to wear kimono. And, and we're, we're kind of like, okay, we have to have this conversation with people, literally every interaction that no, you're not too short. It's meant to be tucked up. Uh, and don't worry about it. You know, um, another challenge that we have is people's own um, hesitations about their own body. You know, we've got a lot of internalized um, body shaming that people carry with them. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't even realize how much of that I carry with me until we started yeah. this business. And it's like, we would have people that would be you know, almost in tears when they realize, oh, wait, you mean I can look beautiful in this? You know, yeah. like, I mean, that that is another thing that we didn't anticipate. It was the emotional impact of this. Oh my God, yeah. Seeing, you know, talking to somebody and, and explaining to them that, you know, this motif is uh, indicates strength in the face of adversity and then having somebody start crying because- <laughs> Literally fall apart at the booth. <laughs> because she survived cancer as it turns out and her spirit- and animals because she's Native American is the tortoise and and this means protection and this means and, and it just having people you know have a, a major emotional um, response and a very personal response. A very oh personal I just got goosebumps <laughs> it's, it's I mean we had a, a customer recently whose mom had passed away when she was nine and she was Japanese and she had never had the chance to try on kimono and she was it was like do I do this? Do I not do this? She, and she told me, I'm going to cry. And I said, yeah, I probably am too. <laughs> I mean, we're all going to be crying by the yes. time we're done here, but is it a good cry? You know, is it, is it a good cry? And she, she said, yeah. So she, as I'm putting the kimono on, she said, no, I've never, I've never tried on kimono before. This is the first time I've ever done it. And I mean, it was, it was so powerful 
just to be able to, to sometimes connect people who might have had a disconnect to their own cultural heritage. Yeah. That is something that we never would have anticipated when, when we got into this business. Um, so that's just a, a slice of some of the challenges that we face bringing well, this experience to people, yeah. but it, we don't really see it as like, oh, you know, this is, this is, whew, this is a big challenge. It's, it's more like, how are we going to bring this to people, meet them where they're at, have a conversation with them, sometimes in a matter of seconds, that educates them, empowers them, encourages them, and also opens up their universe to incorporate a, a physical, tactile, visual, and, and even auditory experience unlike anything they've ever had before. Yeah. So there's, there's so much that goes into everything that we do I think we could probably spend hours <laughs> and, and I know you can because because you two are so intentional like that's that's the biggest thing that 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 struck me about your business is not only the intention that you have with with how you treat your customers and, and your intent to also educate about mm. why the 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 Japanese actually encourage uh, the spread of, of yes. their culture. Yes. Um, but at the same time, like the, the intention that you put into sourcing the kimonos as, as, <laughs> as well, because, oh, yeah. you know, you, I know we, we touched on this a, a brief, briefly in our conversation when we spoke in Davenport about the, the challenges of, of w what you've gone through. So, so, I mean, between, governmental standards and the Yakuza and, <laughs> yeah. and making sure that nothing is, um, yeah. everything is yeah. on the up and up. Yeah. So like, can you share some, share some of the stories that you've experienced, um, and the challenges in importing all of these beautiful kimonos? Well, one of the things that we kind of realized early on is that, um, and, and this is something that we didn't really appreciate too much, even as sisters, we kind of have learned things about each other as we've gone along, is that I've tended to be more of the big idea person and mm -hmm. also the, we need X so that we can accomplish Y. And, and then Cher <laughs> is the one who, um, gets a cup of coffee <laughs> maybe several <laughs> and, and looks at me and says you're killing me small <laughs> and uh and then she goes out and and does it um but at the same time she also has a lot of that uh you know high level you know i need to i need x in order to accomplish y kind of thing so she's the one who handles just so much it, it's of our thank story you. <laughs> thank you i appreciate that well Oh yeah, it, it's um, because I, I don't want to do it. I, oh yeah, well, and, and you know why? Yeah. I can sum it up in one word: paperwork. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I joke around that I, I survive on coffee and paperwork. That is how I get my fiber. It's through my paperwork. So um, here, here's the scoop. Whenever you decide taking, you know, the the cultural exchange out of it, taking, you know, what the product is that we are selling and, and trying to give people experiences with out of it and talking just straight business. Whenever you have a product that you can only get in a foreign country and you are trying to bring that product to the United States, halfway around the world, literally halfway around the world, there are some potential hurdles that you're going to have to jump. Um, the amount that you're sourcing at any given time, um, the, you know, if there are different types of products within your product subset, making sure that you get the proper types for what you need at any given time of year mm -hmm. into the country in a timely fashion. Because there are many different types of kimono. Right. And there's kimono for men, women, children. There's a lot of different types yeah. to consider. 
um, you have the uh, shipping logistics. Are you bringing it in by boat? Are you bringing it in by plane? Are you bringing it in through a combination of really slow boat or really fast plane? Are you going over and literally hand carrying certain types of things over in your suitcases? Are you contracting with people on the ground to literally act as your representative as like a, a designated clone of you and your business on the ground in order to accomplish certain goals so that you can make your product sourcing easier. Yeah, how much of it is at auction versus how much of it is bought directly, how much of it comes from mom and pop businesses, how much of it comes from, you know, larger suppliers. I mean, there's a lot. And and then there's customs. <laughs> yes. And I I laugh when I say that because, you know, if, if anybody working in brokerage or, or in, in Customs and Border Patrol is listening, please know I love you and I love the job that you do because it does make us safer and it does make us more secure. And I appreciate that. However, like I say to Terry, you're killing me, Smalls, um, because there are so many, because what we're doing is not typical, you know, we're not importing you know, electronics. We're not importing 500 widgets, widgets or furniture or, or, you know, wrenches or something like that, that, you know, a Western audience has some kind of concept of what this is and what it does and what it's used for. When you're dealing with kimono, especially with the way we are, where a lot of the things that we're dealing in are vintage. So they're things that have been previously owned that have lived a life in Japan. Some of them very antique. Some of them are very antique. And, and having a customs agent or a customs broker be like, so what are the robes for? You know, that can be... <laughs> That can be a real challenge, yeah. you know, to, because constantly as you're trying to do business, you know, quicker and more efficiently to be, you know, really regularly bogged down with these questions of, okay, they're not really robes. This is what you do with them. This is what we do with them. This is why we're doing this. And to then to constantly get the question of, wow, so there's a market for that, you know, <laughs> and then be like, constantly. well, yeah. And then be like, well, okay, so what NAICS codes are we importing this under? You know, what, how are we classifying these things to bring them into the country? And what's your tariff schedule? And you know, are these new? Are they used? You know, do you have to have consumer product safety testing look at these things the same way they would have to look at, you know, a, a toy if you were having a toy manufactured abroad or and even, imported new? Or, or even like new clothing and you look at some of the difficulties that we've seen in both toys and textiles in the States with, you know, things have lead in them or cadmium. Mm -hmm. There's yep. a lot of issues about the fast fashion industry bringing in items that are really not very safe. Mm -hmm. we, we also get questions about even things like ethical sourcing. Yes. Um, you know, we some of our customers are in the military. Some people do have security clearances to worry about. And so for the kimono, for, you know, for the obi, we want to make sure that we're not exploiting anybody in the process of getting these, you know, yep. We don't want the Yakuza, you know, involved just from our own ethical standpoint, but also because if somehow something was ever traced back through a customer to us, then back to the Yakuza, that customer could actually lose their security clearance because of that. Mm -hmm. Now, this comes up more for some of the antiques that we import because we, we yeah. do import kimono and obi, but we also import other Japanese items as well. So, for example, um, we have an antique set of samurai armor. That yes, is, it uh, is stunning. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. you know, it is stunning. It's something that it's somebody who has an interest in, you know, militaria would be, uh, you know, interested in acquiring. But we do get that question of, you know, how do I know that this is going to be okay? Yeah. And so, like, our people in Japan certify that they don't deal with right quote unquote unsavory elements of society exactly <laughs> well, yeah they, they literally call um oh god what's the term that they use that you're not dealing with um, um anti, anti any antisocial groups yes. that none of the sourcing process deals with quote unquote antisocial groups which is the kind of big umbrella nice way of saying that you don't deal with the japanese mob yeah um and then on top of that, you also, it, it's not even just your own stuff that can be messed up. Like you could fill out every piece of paperwork perfectly and Sherry does. And you could dot every I and cross every T and Sherry does. And yet you could still get that customs official who looks at our business name, says Tangerine Mountain. Okay, great. I'm going to send these three skids over to the CDC <laughs> because these must contain fruits. 
because that actually totally happened like three months ago. (laughs) And then we get some very confused people calling us saying, we have this stuff to test for pests and it's not fruit and we're very confused. Is this made with fruit? Is there fruit inside it? <laughs> what happened? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, so, and, and then there's things like we had the great hoverboard, the counterfeit oh hoverboard disaster of 2016, which oh is like an indelible mark in, in our business history, in which we had a container coming in on the same ship as a whole slew of counterfeit hoverboards that had. I mean, these are the kind of things that caught kids on fire. I mean, kids died because of these. So yep. it's very serious. You know, we joke about some of this stuff, but it is very serious. And so when it's just that we got caught up in the the whole dragnet of getting these counterfeit hoverboards figured out, and it held up our shipment for, I think, it was like two or three months. Two, three months. Yeah. And we need that inventory. And, <laughs> you know, it's and not like we can just go to California and just pick up some more. Exactly. And so I think one of the big, big challenges is not, you know, finding things. Yes, that's a challenge. Figuring out how to get it to the States and challenge. doing it responsibly and ethically and legally. Like, yeah, you know, there's a lot to figure out there. But let me tell you, the biggest challenge is time. Yeah. Time and time again. It's time. And especially since you both are, are moms. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Exactly. It's very hard sometimes to figure out how am I going to deal with this issue when I have to take my seven-year-old to the doctor and then my kids have occupational therapy and then I need to, you know, get home and then get yeah. to the office and the, Sherry has, has a three-year-old daughter. Who, oh God, when we were moving offices back oh in, in, in the same year, 2016, 2016 was a big year for our business. It's a big year. Um, <laughs> it, it was a big oh, yeah, year. Because so, I was dealing with the counterfeit hoverboards while she was dealing with. I, I was actually in the hospital. I, I had complications with my pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, spoiler alert, both me and baby are fine. So it's all good. Yeah. Yes. Um, awesome. Yeah. Which is, is, is good and important, but um, we were also moving offices at the time. And because the people that had the lease in our current office and warehouse space basically decided, well, we don't want to move, even though we had a lease signed and they had their next lease signed. Poor Terry is is stuck dealing with a moving company that literally could not do the one thing they're supposed to do and move out of our office. And move out of what was going to become our office. A, a misogynist landlord who didn't see the problem with all of this. And dealing with the shipment that was supposed to be coming in, but got held up in customs. And I'm meanwhile in the hospital, literally taking phone calls at all hours of the day and night because I'm talking to, you know, customs brokers here in the States. At some point, customs agents, which isn't really typical to have direct contact with them, but there were so many questions that it was like, you know what, just let me talk to Bob. I just need to talk to Bob and we're going to clear this up. Talk to Bob. You know, and then, and like, then t- talking to our Japanese partners who are going, you haven't gotten this yet. What happened? Like we can track the shipping. It's in the States. We can see that, you know, the customs broker has seen it, but you see in their shipping liability, depending upon how you ship things, you know, depending upon where custody of a shipment changes over, if anything happened to that shipment, in theory, they could have still been liable if yeah. something gotten lost or damaged. So, you know, to take phone calls from Japan at three in the morning, my time while I'm in the hospital to reassure them, no, someone hasn't run off with the shipping container full of stuff. We just have a bit of a counterfeit problem because someone else from some other country that happened to put stuff on the same boat as ours decided to do something a bit nefarious and now we're caught up in it. Yeah. So I got to ask, this is like, you two have such a passion and a drive for what it is that you do. And I, and I'm pretty darn sure that that's what pulls you through in, in moments like 2016, (laughs) but like, where did you, how did you build your resilience in, in that capacity? What were you thinking in those moments? What beliefs did you have that kept you going when it really, you know, taking calls in the hospital? (laughs) I mean, how, how did you do it? Well, Okay, part of it is that Sherry and I Sherry and I both have dealt with a lot of our own medical difficulties. So we both 
are disabled, we don't look it, but we are. Um, Sherry used a wheelchair for seven years in um, high school and college. Wow. Sherry's also hard of hearing, so she has hearing aids. Um, I have um, autoimmune disease. I had a, a bout of complex regional pain syndrome as a kid that, that put me in a wheelchair for a while. Um, in fact, I was, I was nine when the doctor said, you're never going to walk again. And I just remember thinking, I don't believe you. Um, because <laughs> well I'm, too stubborn. I'm too stubborn for that. But also part of the reason why I think going into business for myself was very attractive to me, even as a very young child, um, was because I figured if this was before the Americans with Disabilities Act was even passed, it was 1988 and they're telling me I'll never walk again. And they're telling me you're never going to have a job. And so I remember thinking, well, if I'm my own boss, then I can't fire myself for not being able to walk, you know? Yep. So there's a, there's a lot of moments in our lives, um, even into early childhood. I mean, we both had brittle asthma. We had fatal food allergies. We, we had a lot of, you know, illnesses and difficulties and a lot of times in which people kind of said, well, you're not going to amount to anything because you're not, um, you know, perfectly physically able. Yeah. And the two of us were both, you know, we were raised by parents who are sort of like, don't tell me I can't put that square peg into that round hole. <laughs> you know, Give me the I, knife, I, let me shave it into a round thing. Exactly. Yeah. I will, I will make it happen. You know, our, our mom dealt with a lot of disability in, among her relatives. And so she's always been very stubborn, very strong. And then our dad, um, also very stubborn, very strong. And he started his own law firm when we were kids yeah. working with entrepreneurs and, and basically, um, he, he's an attorney. He does uh, contracts and, and negotiations. And so a lot of the people that he worked with were also, you know, entrepreneurs, you know, startups just like him. And so our whole upbringing was kind of steeped in this idea of you have to push yourself through difficult times, you know, mm -hmm. physically, mentally, spiritually, and also from a career perspective, you know, we constantly had that example of people who had an idea, had to get their stuff together enough to take that idea somehow to market and get that idea into a, a product or a service um, and, and really make it happen. And you know, part of it, I, I think, is just that, you know, we were never told, no, you can't fulfill your dreams by our parents. You know, they they never saw us as, oh, well, you're disabled, so therefore... Well done, mom and dad. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> like, well done. So, yeah. Absolutely. And and so they helped us, I think, combat the, the ableism that you see so yeah. prevalent still in society. Well, and, and I think it's important to note too, you know, for, especially for, to be selfish here for a minute, especially for me, you know, when I was dealing with my particular bout, you know, in the wheelchair and everything, um, there were so many people that I did encounter in life that were like, well, you know, not only no, you can't do something, but also the, well, why should I? You know, it's the, well, why mm. should I put a ramp on that building so you can get to class? Why should I move my classroom from an inaccessible building on the fourth floor to a building on campus that's two blocks closer to everyone with a classroom available on the ground floor? You know, why should I do this? And, you know, it, it was a situation where in dealing with all of those people, for me, and in, in talking to such strong people like my parents and Terry, it, it really hit home to me that in reality, you know, there's no such thing as a problem. There are just solutions that you haven't found yet. I and love that. One of, I think one of the greatest lessons in life is that we have learned is, yeah. okay, taking a situation, finding the best solution for the problem, but also making sure that it's a solution where everybody that has a stake in that problem wins. Because if everybody wins, then everyone is going to have a vested interest in making that solution come about. I am cheering so hard right now inside <laughs> of my booth. I'm like, yes. Um, one of my favorite books that I read to my son is What Do You Do With a Problem? And it, um, it 
is a fantastic perspective shift to looking at the problem from the space of where is the solution? Where is the opportunity to learn and to grow so that it's a win-win for everyone? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, and I, I think another thing to kind of layer on top of that, you know, there there was a woman at Northwestern. She still works with Northwestern, but she's in the Dubai campus. Her name is Susan Dunn, and she was the assistant dean of my school when I was at Northwestern. And we had a really powerful conversation on what started off as quite frankly, a really crappy day. Um, and she really helped turn it around. And one of the things that she told me was, you know, okay, well, you have this problem, we have a solution, we have all of the people that, you know, can help make this solution happen. And I told her one of my frustrations was like, well, okay, this is great that we can get all these people to buy into the solution, but I still feel like I'm lesser. I still feel like I'm a bit of an imposter because I don't have all of the knowledge necessary to do all of these other people's jobs for them to get them to buy into this whole solution idea that we have. And one of the things that Susan Dunn said was, you know, you can't be an expert on everything. You know, you can try to solve all of the problems in the world, but you can't know everything. And rather than berating yourself for not knowing everything, what you really need to do is take a look at what your relative area of expertise is, bring that to the table, and then don't hesitate to bring in other people with different relative areas of expertise to help solve your problem. Because if you try to know everything, you're just going to be screaming into the wind, you know? So if, if you can bring a solution where everybody wins, but everybody also gets to flex their relative areas of expertise, your solution becomes that much stronger because you're surrounded by a body of experts that want to bring about the same result. Amen. One of the top things that I, I teach and I work with my clients on is honing their zone of genius and really being crystal clear on what that is and then allowing other people, their team members, whomever, to operate in their zone of genius because then you have everybody firing on all cylinders rather than you trying to fire on at 100% on the ones that you're really good at but only firing really at, eight, at 40 or 50% because you're trying to do everything at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So this is a concept, Tangerine Mountain. First of all, where did the name come from? <laughs> like, I have to ask. Yeah, why, 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 what happened was. Yeah, like, since it gets confused with produce, like, let's just be clear how this came about. And it's funny because our dad did warn us about that. He said, at some point, you are going to get mistaken for a fruit seller and it's going to cause you problems. And it's like, we know. It's like, we know, but don't worry. I'll fill out the paperwork really good, dad. It'll yeah, be it'll great. Be great. <laughs> And, you know, and, and uh, so what happened was when Sherry was in Japan for her thesis research trip, she lived out there for six weeks and um, she was going, part of her time was with her thesis professor. Um, professor. Yeah. He was a great man. His, uh, his name is Stanley Murashige. I don't think he's at the Art Institute no. any longer. I think he's down in Texas now. Um, and so he took her and then a um, yeah, he, he ended up taking, it was kind of an off day. There were other students that were on this part of the trip and, um, we kind of broke off from the group. So it was, uh, Stanley, me and two other chaperones for the trip. And he decided to take us to a place called Koyasan. Um, now Koyasan is actually considered the physical birthplace of Buddhism in Japan. So it's a very important place. It's a very important site. Um, not just in terms of spirituality, but also in terms of history. Oh yeah, because it's the, the um, there's a very famous cemetery there called Okunoin Cemetery, and that's where the Tokugawa family is, is buried. And the Tokugawa were the, the shogun, they, they ruled Japan for 250 years mm -hmm. during the Edo period. So this is a very culturally significant site. So um, it, it was actually really kind of um, an interesting experience that I wasn't really expecting to have on the trip. So, you know, we get up on this mountain, I'm, I'm learning about the history of the place, you know, both from historical as well as spiritual perspective. And an artwork perspective. And in too. terms of the artwork too, because yeah. I mean, the, the architecture is amazing. It is. It's absolutely incredible to see. And, you know, there was a moment where Stanley and I had broken away and he saw this little tangerine vendor 
on the side of the road and he bought us tangerines to eat. Uh, it was the first tangerine I had eaten in Japan. Um, and there was this one spot in Okunoyan Cemetery by a particular Jizo statue. Um, it, they actually know it as the Rouge Jizo, where it's a particular statue that's meant to um, kind of help protect and bless the, the spirits of children. And um, people make offerings uh, by, you know, leaving food, by leaving coins, um, but also by actually doing the makeup of this particular, this particular statue. Jesus. So, you know, people will put, you know, their eyeshadow on it, their lipstick, you know, they're not defacing it. They're actually participating in leaving this particular statue uh, an offering in the form of making it up and making it look very pretty. And uh, I figured, well, this is, you know, this is a really cool place and this is a very distinctive landmark. So if I ever wanted to find my way back here, I can look for the, the makeup of Jesus statue. And I just kind of started thinking about everything. I started thinking about how we had always said that we wanted to go into business together. I was kind of thinking about all of the things that my professor had shown me in, you know, how to do Japan and, and how to, you know, find the things that we love. And, you know, I, I, ended up there was like one bar of reception <laughs> right by the statue and I called Terry on Skype and I started kind of doing a brain dump mm. of everything and we kind of decided in that moment it was like well Terry you know this is this is the info this is what I've got what do you think and Terry was like you know what let's do it let's let's go into business we may not have everything figured out yet we may not know where this path is going to take us, but you know, I don't know how we're going to do this, but it feels right. But let's do it. Let's, let's import Japanese stuff because we can't be the only people who have seen kimono and have seen Japanese fine art and just think I want that, but we can't, it, we, as kids, we had such a hard time getting a hold of the things that we really wanted from Japan. And it was, it was very frustrating. You know, what you yeah. could find was very expensive. And so we thought, well, we can't be the only ones walking around anime conventions wishing that we could find kimono, wishing that we could see more Japanese art. And it was really there. and it was really that moment eating the tangerines mm -hmm. on, on the top mountain. of the mountain <laughs> that we, you know, decided to go for it. Yeah. So, you know, thus started the multi-year research plan and getting proverbial ducks in a row. Yeah. And when it came time to actually put a name to what we were doing, you know, it was Terry's idea. She was like, hey, you know, rather than naming it, you know, the Kimono Sisters or right. Chicago Kimono or right. something like I, that. I have a philosophy for any business that I have started or that I've, I've talked to anybody else about starting is that it's, um, it's always a good idea maybe not always, but, you know, probably a good idea to name your business after an experience or a, a description because, yep. you know, you can, you could be Smith photography and you're Smith photography number 517 in this country, but there is only one tangerine mountain. Mm -hmm. um, so naming a business after an experience or after something meaningful, it also gives people kind of a, a curiosity factor. And, you know, what is this actually about? And, you know, why did, why did you name your company this? And, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's unusual. It, it's a vehicle to another experience. Yeah, exactly. I completely agree. That's why, like, for me, I didn't name my business Kimberly Spencer coaching because yeah. I also, you know, if you think longevity, if you think legacy, mm -hmm. um, if ever you are to have someone else step into your place, right? then you can, with, with having a company name that's separate, that yeah. they can be enrolled in the experience and in the mission of it and then continue that legacy. That, that for me is, is what I see when, when you name something that's beyond yourself, yeah. it's actually more greater foresight. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, naming it after an experience really helps focus us, I think, very early on, on that um, you know, customer experience. And I think it really kind of gets other people in the mindset of this is an experience because, you know, when, when we're running our booth, we're putting together a tremendous number of experiences all in one, typically pretty short interaction for people. And so if, 
people are, um, you know, just expecting to just walk up and buy something and walk away. I mean, we have some small items at our booth that, yeah, you know, people can do that. But generally speaking, people bring their friends back to us because they've had an experience. And then their friends, they want their friends to have that experience. You know, things can be collected and bought and sold, but experiences are things that we typically want to share mm -hmm. with others. And so that was... Um, just naming a, a business after an experience, I think, is just a really smart strategy um, to to help bring people in and not just bring people in like you bring people in, but to have other people then bring still others in yes. at mm -hmm. the same time. And especially with with you know your level of passion that you bring to shifting the conversation to doing a business that has not been done before to my knowledge uh shifting a cultural environmental and an educational perception mm -hmm. like all of that when you enroll them in that experience suddenly worlds open magic happen like i just it's it's majestic what you do there's thank you. thank you um there's there's actually a phrase that we go for um with every interaction that we have and that's is the person having an experience that is meaningful and transformative? Um, and that particular phrasing, it actually comes from education. Um, we actually use uh, what we call a, a Frarian model of education, where rather than you know, telling people that you know, something should be important to them and listing off a whole bunch of facts and, and kind of pouring knowledge into what we assume is an empty vessel, that doesn't really work. No. Um, you know, for education in general, I don't think that that works, but especially yes. in a business like ours, it's right. just not the right model. Instead, if you can make each experience an interaction where, you know, yes, you are the teacher, but you're also the student of the person that you are interacting with. You know, I, I may bring all of the kimono knowledge to the table, but, you know, the customer brings the knowledge of, who they are, how they identify, their level of ability or disability, their level of exposure to Japanese culture or not, their comfort with their own bodies, their comfort with participating in a completely foreign way of doing things. And, you know, nobody else can be the expert of that but them. So if you come to the table knowing that both of you guys are the experts in something and you're going to make something magical happen, you can actually slide in a subversive education model where they actually learn things, not just about your area, but about themselves at the same time. Then you're creating that meaningful and transformative experience that is something that is going to open up their mind. You know, it is going to want them to uh, make them want to share their experience and share the knowledge that they've gained. And if we continue to participate in models like this, then we're ensuring we're staying, you know, on point with our core goal of engaging in cultural exchange through kimono. Oh, I love it. I could talk to you ladies like literally all day. You two are, are phenomenal. Your resilience is freaking inspiring. And ev with everything that you've overcome and all the challenges that you've faced from being disabled to being a female-owned and operated business and doing business in Japan in a foreign country with all the customs and all the things. Like, it is just extraordinary what you are building. And I know that you two are only just starting. Yeah. Like, I know that it, the next decade for you is going to be so massive, which is why I'm so grateful that I got you here on The Princess and the Bee. So if you are ready, let's dive into a little bit of fun, rapid fire, um, just some silly questions. There's no right or wrong sure. answer. Ready? Sure. Okay. Cool. What is your favorite female character in a movie and why? Oh, I would say probably... Um, Belle from Beauty and the Beast. Yes, <laughs> that's movie because she was not afraid to be smart at a time and in, in a place when women were not encouraged to be smart. And I very much identified with her as a kid, being in. I went to school in a very old world kind of neighborhood where it was really frowned upon for girls to to learn and to want to, you know, just basically enrich themselves. And so it, I was like, you know. It, yeah, it, I really, really identified yep. 
with her. For for me, Rapunzel. Uh, from from Tangled. I mean, yeah. General, but yeah, because we're kids at heart. She, so yeah, we are. Um, <laughs> same here. Same here. But she, I think, in the movie, is not afraid of what she doesn't know. It's not, you know, the world that she's literally never stepped outside her tower before, but she still decides to go for it. And she has all these crazy and wild adventures and experiences, but she chooses to not be afraid and go for it. And for when her bravery, you know, starts to fail her, she has her handy dandy frying pan. And for me, my frying pan is my paperwork. So <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like it works. You could probably kill somebody with the amount of paperwork that Sherry's had to generate. Yes. So, you know, <laughs> I hope Holy sense of humor is kind of one of those things, too, that really helps us get by in our yeah. business. If you don't have a sense of humor, then, then just don't bother. Yeah. <laughs> You're not going to survive in business. I'm yeah. serious. Totally agree. I completely agree. Yeah. Taking yourself way too seriously or the whole situation way too seriously. It's, 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 it's already challenging enough as it is. Yep. So if you two were queen of a country, what would be your prime focus? I mean, education. Probably, yeah. Education and health, yeah. really. Yeah. Because but equal access for people with disabilities. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. for me, that that kind of gets slumped into education and health yeah. because, you know, being educated enough as a society to realize that your experience is not going to be the same as everybody else's. And that's okay. And that's okay. <laughs> and, and that's good. Yeah. And that everybody's health is going to be different. And if we actually take the time to learn a little bit about each other, then maybe we can help lift everybody up instead of you know excluding people yeah you know i i think that's that's what i would do yeah I think I cheer after everything that you say. I'm like literally fist pumping <laughs> the air. I'm like, thank you. Like, so if your palace had a curse jar, how much money would you have to put in it daily? And by curse jar, I mean swear jar. Like, not like you're putting curses on anyone. <laughs> he would never have to worry about funding again. No, um, no where we, I have to say, um, we do, we do swear like sailors. Yes. Um, our grandpa was a Navy man and we have carried that forward. Yes. In our swearing tradition. Yes. <laughs> so we have many creative ways of. In various languages. In various languages yeah. of expressing our frustration or sometimes our happiness even. Yeah. I mean, just any strong emotion is just a great time to just yeah. start swearing. But, but we're, cla I will say though, we're classy about it. And usually if, if we are in an otherwise inappropriate situation yeah. for swearing, like if it still is necessary, we will switch to a different language that chances are most everybody else in the room won't understand. So like we can still express to each other and yeah. like have that satisfaction, but like, we'll still, we'll, we're still classy about it. Yeah. <laughs> I love that multilingual swearing. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. the only, the only words that I know how to say in German are swear words. Yeah. So. I mean, it's, it's true for so many people and it's like, you know, it's, it's long, I mean, we're moms, you know, we got kids. We don't want our kids to pick up on all this other stuff. So, you know, sometimes we have to be a little creative about it, but yeah, no, we, 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 we wouldn't have a swear jar. We would have like a swear room. What woman would you want to trade places with just for a day? Oh, man. Um, I think maybe Queen Elizabeth. Because I think that it would be absolutely fascinating to see all of the things that she juggles behind the scenes that nobody ever hears about because they're not supposed to. Um, she makes sure that they don't. That is so much loftier than my response. Oh, oh my okay. God. I'm sorry. No, <laughs> no, no, no. That's, that's, that's good though. I mean, I, I feel like since I deal with customs so much and all of the behind the scenes stuff so much, I feel like, no, I've already seen behind that curtain. Like, honestly, for me, my answer is whichever woman in the world gets to take a nap at two o'clock every day, if I could be her for a day. <laughs> <laughs> Like that's, that's, fair. that's fair. I am I am good with that. My bar is low. <laughs> like my bar is low on that one. <laughs> so if you had to have your success at twice the speed, how would you have done it differently? Oh God. Oh God. Um we would have died. <laughs> yeah. I mean, started, to be real, we started our business out of my basement, signing up for three. I want to say three anime conventions. And yeah. by the end of the third, we had been invited to 50 more. So we made a five-year plan. That five-year plan was achieved within nine months. And then we made another five-year plan and we achieved that one within a year. And then we made a whole bunch of other five-year plans. And a lot of those have been achieved well before five years. So I think 
we would die. Yeah. <laughs> if we, like, legitimately, We'd be like, dead. One, <laughs> of sleep deprivation. To kind of bring it back to something that you talked about earlier with challenges, you know, mm -hmm. one of the challenges that we face regularly is just the limitations of our own bodies. Yeah. And sleep. Yeah. And, and after, yeah, and after a while, like, the sleep deprivation gets real. If we yeah. had to do it any faster, I don't know I, if we would be die. able to. No, we'd die. So, so what habits and beliefs have served you best in building your business? Probably the, one of the earliest ones that we came upon, and this was very, very early. This is like when we were getting invited to those 50 shows and we kind of looked at each other like, we're going to need more Obi because <laughs> like, we need more stuff. We, we need, need more space. We need, oh my God. <laughs> we need more stuff. Like we, we, had, we imported a few skids and felt like that was climbing a mountain just on its own. And then we, we kind and then of, it was gone in a show and a half. Yeah. And wow. we, we're looking yeah. at that going, I, and I, that this is kind of my internal stuff. I, I kind of tend to look at where we're at and where our inventory is at and project, you know, how long it's going to last. And cause it's not like we can run out to the store and just get more. Um, and so, you know, I looked at Sherry and said, my God, we're going to need more and we're going to need more like, like, we're going to need a lot more and we're going to need a lot more really soon. And how are we going to do this? And so Sherry approached some pretty big suppliers in Japan and just basically said, you know, Hey, we don't know how successful we're going to be. You know, we're kind of going on an adventure here, but if you're willing to come along with us, then, you know, we'd love to have you. And we learned right away that it doesn't hurt to ask, Yeah. you know, you, you might be surprised who says yes. Because we totally did not expect these people to come back to us and say, yeah, sure. Okay. You know, what do you want? And, and when do you want it by? Yeah. It, and yet that's what happened. And for so many people who might say it's very hard for women to go into business. It's very hard to do business in Japan. It's very hard to do business internationally, just in general. Um, yeah. You know, there's a lot of no out there. And if you can learn to just you know, be willing, be willing to accept, you know, you might hear no, and that's fine. You mm -hmm. know, just ask somebody else instead of letting that no stop you from the start before you've even asked the question, always ask. You never know who's going to say yes. One of my favorite quotes is from Oprah. She says, in life, you get what you have the courage to ask for. I love and it's it. one of the top things I teach of just like, just make the ask. Yeah. Like yeah. what do you, once you're clear on what you want, just ask for it. Yeah. 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 Even if you're not entirely clear what you want, like we didn't even know exactly how some of the, the supply chain in Japan worked. Yeah. And, and so sometimes we would say, okay, this may seem like a really basic question to you, but I'm new to this. So how does this work? Um, and, and same thing with the um, importing and, and logistics of getting things into the country. You know, thank God for people who were willing to answer maybe the basic questions, but you know, it, like during the great counterfeit hoverboard disaster, I was asking a lot of questions because like I told them, I don't do this normally. It's normally my sister. This is going to seem basic, but, you know, walk me through this process. Sometimes you have to say, I don't know this stuff, you know, yeah. help me out. And you'd be surprised how often people are willing to explain things. And if somebody doesn't want to explain it or if they don't want to help you, then just, you know, write them off, move on, move on to somebody else who's willing to help because you will probably find that person. So what message do you want to share with the world? Okay. So now I guess it's my turn to be yeah. lofty. Yeah, you're <laughs> so Go for I it. I, I, I feel, okay. So I feel like paradoxically our world is getting smaller, but I feel like more now than ever, more and more people are finding all of the differences between each other and are really putting people who don't have their shared experiences into that category of, well, they're the other, you know, that's, that's a whole different person. That's a whole different set of, of things that I don't even want to deal with. And I feel like if we can, if, if we, and if everybody out there in the world made a small effort every day to just recognize the humanity in another person and to be willing to walk a mile in their shoes, then I think that this world would be a much better place. Our world would shrink rapidly and for the better. And I think it would make everybody realize that you do have to be willing to put your own experience down 
and engage in another person's experiences in order to understand more about yourself. You know, that's the whole point of cultural exchange. It's not just to learn about another culture. It's so that at the end of the day, you can use that culture as a mirror and learn something about the mirror and learn something about yourself at the same time. And I think once people actually start to realize that this world is going to be a much happier and a much more open place. And that's, that's what we're trying to do. Just instead of through other people's shoes, we're trying to do it through kimono. Amazing. So lastly, how do you each crown yourself? Whatever that means for you. Crown myself. Hmm. Um, hmm. I, I kind of feel like Sherry, you need to be crowned queen of putting every aspect of your degree in, <laughs> in art education. Yes. I am the queen of using my degree every day. Yes, yes. Not everybody gets to say that, but especially in the art world, that's a pretty, you know, big thing to to say. That's huge. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I think, oh man, this is kind of tough for me. Um, Can I crown you? Yeah, you can crown me. I would, I would crown you the queen of challenge. Okay. Because you, you are not afraid to challenge others. And their perceptions. Fair. You're not afraid to challenge me when it comes to what we need for the business, <laughs> whether it's sourcing things or, you know, on the micro level or looking at the big picture and you never shy away from challenge. So yeah, I that's, would, that's fair, actually. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm definitely the kind of person where somebody says, you're not going to get all of this packed in the next hour. And that's what really it takes to motivate me to do anything. It's like, <laughs> oh yeah, watch me. Yeah. Watch me. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I, I would I would fair to say that that you might be an Enneagram eight like me. <laughs> if you've taken the Enneagram test, that's that's definitely one that I when I took that I was like, oh, everything makes a lot more sense now. Yeah, yeah. Yep. I mean, it even extends into like like when we go out for a beer after the the show's done, and <laughs> someone will say, oh, you can't drink another. Yeah, I can. Watch. <laughs> <laughs> you just better be ready to drive me back to the hotel. Yep. <laughs> but yeah, I'll do that. You know, start a business. Yeah, sure. I'll do that. <laughs> yep. Right. You know, yeah, I would say that's good. I love both of your tenacity, your resilience, your, your passion for what you do. I'm just, I'm kind of obsessed with you. I'm like your biggest fan right now. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm a huge fan, huge fan of what you do and the mission behind your business and what you want to do for the world and in sharing cultural experiences so that people can have their their own sort of reflection into into their own life and and that is so powerful and i am so grateful that you two came on to this program thank you so much if you want to find out more about tangerine mountain or if you're interested in getting a kimono or trying one on for yourself go to tangerinemountain.com you can follow them on all of the socials at tangerine kimono or tangerine mountain and these two are just dynamite. And I can only imagine what they will be doing for the cultural conversation in the next decade, if this is the level of conversation that they brought to this podcast. So as always, my fellow empire builders, own your throne, mind your business, because your reign is now. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If what you heard resonated with you, be sure to subscribe and share your breakthroughs and ahas with me by leaving a review on iTunes so I can keep the magic flowing your way. And if you aren't already following us on social media, come experience the extra inspiration and queenly convos on Instagram at crownyourselfnow or visit our website at crownyourself.com. I am so excited to connect with you in the next episode. And in the meantime, go out there and create a body, business, and life that rules.